And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Well, may God bless us as we study his word today. We know what happens next. Herod realizes that the Magi had gone home by a different route. They didn't do what he had asked them to do. And so Herod calls out the order to have every baby boy in Bethlehem and the surrounding area around Bethlehem murdered. Any baby boy two years of age or younger because he wanted to wipe out this so-called king of the Jews. And then the passage in verse 18 says, This is a fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah's words. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I'm so glad that you're here with us today as we wrap up our Christmas message series, Christmas at the Movies. Last month, our congregation voted on their four favorite Christmas movies of all time, and we've been doing this countdown all month long. We started with the two movies that were tied for third place, Home Alone and the Polar Express. And so we spent a week each on those messages. Last week, we looked at the movie that was our congregation's second favorite Christmas movie of all time, uh, the theologically uh, beautiful and deep movie, Elf. And so we looked at Elf last week. i got to say, that was a little tougher to find the biblical themes in Elf, but we did it, didn't we? And then today, we're going to spotlight what came in first place as, for many of us, our favorite Christmas movie of all time. It's a movie that is the original Christmas classic. It first entered theaters in 1946. And this movie tells the story about a 20-something-year-old dreamer by the name of George Bailey. George Bailey lived in a, a little bitty town of Bedford Falls, and he manages a small building and loan company that his dad had started. But we know very early in the movie that George hates the building and loan company. And in fact, he can't stand that little town of Bedford Falls, and he can't wait to get out and see the world. He doesn't like being cooped up in that crummy little town, as he refers to it. And so he's excited to go see the world. He wants to do big things, and he does, over the course of the movie, end up doing some big things, but they're not at all the big things that he had expected. Today's movie, of course, is it's a wonderful life. So feel free to grab those bags of popcorn, break them open. You can eat popcorn during this message. It's perfectly fine. I also encourage you to grab the message notes if you're sitting uh, next to an aisle. Those message notes are piled up right there. You can pass those down to people in your rows so they can fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. And so when we dig into God's Word here at Impact, I always encourage you to have a Bible, a pen or pencil, and those message notes. And this month, popcorn as well works great. So uh, we're going to see this first clip in just a moment. Are we looking good, DJ? Thank the Lord. Our technology appears to be working. That's a great thing. So this first clip takes place early in the movie. It's a few years after George Bailey has graduated from high school. He goes back to his alma mater for a dance. And as he's there at the dance, remember, he wants to get out of this podunk little town. And he's at this dance, and he has no expectation of meeting a girl. He has no expectation of falling in love, but a young girl by the name of Mary turns his head. And he dances with her. They fall in a swimming pool together. 
And as they're drenched and dripping, they make their way home. George is walking Mary home that night, and that's where this clip picks up. It was a silent movie. Is he's going to go out and see the Parthenon. He's going to see Rome and Greece. He's going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high, bridges a mile long. And Mary just politely listens, but then throws a rock at that old abandoned house, making a wish. And George asks her what her wish was, and she refuses to tell him. And you know the song she's singing, those of you that love this movie? Buffalo girls, won't you come out tonight? Won't you come out tonight? Won't you come out tonight? Buffalo girls, won't you come out tonight and dance by the light of the moon? Much better in the movie. But George points to the moon and says, Mary, what would you like? She won't tell him what his wish was. He says, do you want the moon? I'll throw a lasso around it and bring it to you. And she says, I'll take it. So George commits to lasso the moon for Mary. And the clip ends with the old fellow on the porch who's been watching all of this and listening to all this says, oh, youth is wasted on the wrong people. He thinks George is talking too much and kissing too little. And the scene ends. Well, shortly after this clip, George has some friends screech to a halt in their car at the curb right in front of where he's walking Mary home. And the person in the car, his friend, tells him that his dad, the owner of that building and loan company, has had a major stroke. And so George apologizes to Mary, and he jumps in the car, and they speed off to go see his dad. And we find out in the next scene that George Bailey's dad passed away as a result of that stroke. And so there George is with his dad dead, his mom and family devastated, And that building and loan that was completely dependent on George's dad running it no longer has a leader. And so we see that George steps in and he decides he's going to be there at least for a few months to to, to put Paris and the Parthenon on hold. He's going to jump in and help bridge the gap until the building and loan can find its new leader. But after three months, we discover that that's not going to happen at all. He has in this next clip a a meeting with Mr. Potter. And Mr. Potter is the richest man in town. And Richard Potter, or Mr. Potter, has wanted that building and loan to close for years. And George sadly discovers that if it's going to stay open, it's going to be because of his doing. We good on audio? Okay, we're not going to have audio, so we'll just wing it without that. You can go ahead and put the lights back up, Reba, that'll be fine. So George Bailey, he was the dreamer, and he thought he had it all figured out. He thought he had it all figured out. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was going to do tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And what he knew for sure, he wasn't staying in that town. He wasn't leading that building and loan. It's the last thing in the world that he wanted to do. Well, it didn't pan out quite the way that George wanted, did it? 
And when it came down to it, the wise men, the magi as they're called in Matthew chapter 2, they dealt with a little bit of curveball as well. These stargazers in Matthew chapter 2, I think, were a lot like George Bailey. They spent their night times staring at the stars, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if these stargazers, these magi, had talked to each other one night with a full moon, hey, you think we could ever lasso the moon and pull it down to us? Maybe they had that same dream that George did. And so there those stargazers were, there those magi were, and Matthew really doesn't tell us a whole lot about them. He introduces them very quickly in the first couple of verses of Matthew 2, but doesn't tell us much about them. And so there have been a lot of legends over the years about these magi, about these stargazers. And so many of those legends are wrapped up in that song, We Three Kings. Most people think there were three of them, but Matthew doesn't tell us there were three, does he? He just uses the plural word magi. So these stargazers, there may have been two of them that came to worship Jesus on that, on that visit. There could have been as many as ten. We don't know. And we're pretty sure that they weren't kings, even though we like that old hymn. They most likely weren't kings because we know that Magi were the ruling class in Babylon and Persia, which was kind of in the south part of modern-day Iraq, about a 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. And so these Magi, these stargazers, being a part of that Magi upper class, we know that Magi in those days, they weren't kings, but they were kingmakers. The upper-class magi were highly educated. They were experts in astronomy and astrology. They were experts even in forms of, of witchcraft. Our word magic comes from the word magi. And so these guys who were pagan worshipers, astronomers, astrologers, people that spent their nights gazing at the stars and trying to interpret omens and tell the future based on how the planetary alignment was, these guys, a thousand miles from Jerusalem, one night they see something in the sky and they don't recognize it. And so they check their astral charts and they talk amongst themselves and realize this is something new we've never seen and no one before us has ever seen. And somehow they make the connection that this new star in the sky marks the birth of the king of the Jews. And I think it's rather remarkable that these pagan astrologers and practicers, practicers of witchcraft travel a thousand miles, a journey that would have taken them weeks if not months, they travel a thousand miles to worship the king of the Jews, and the Jews themselves weren't willing to travel a few miles to worship their own king. But that's what happened when the Magi came into town. They travel a thousand miles to worship the king of kings and the king of the Jews. So I was thinking about this this last week. I was thinking a bit about heroes and villains. Some of the, the greatest stories and greatest movies of all time have a hero and a villain, right? So you think of Star Wars. There's a lot of buzz about Star Wars this weekend. The newest installment, Episode Nine, came out. And you think of the Star Wars franchise, especially those original three that came out. Luke Skywalker, he was the hero. And the villain was Darth Vader. You've seen the movie, right? Cinderella. Cinderella is the hero. And the villain is the wicked stepmother. And so you look at Batman. Batman is the hero. And the villain is the Joker is the main villain. There's a number of them, but the Joker is the main one. And those of you, how many uh, Little House in the Prairie fans out there? Oh, good, all ten of you. 
Little House on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls in the schoolhouse. She's the hero, and the villain is mean old Nellie Olson. So some of the best stories, some of the best movies have a hero and a villain. And the hero is usually a giver, and the villain is a taker. Well, as we look at this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, there's a hero and a villain. As we look at this account in Matthew chapter 2 of the wise men, the magi coming to worship Jesus, there's also some heroes and a villain. You see, there are heroes in Matthew 2. The magi are the ones lifted up as those coming to do the right thing, to worship the Christ child. And King Herod, we soon discover, is the villain. Now, there are three King Herods in the New Testament. This King Herod in Matthew 2 is the first of those three. He was King Herod the Great. We know that he ruled between about 37 B.C. and 4 B.C. And there's a lot we know about King Herod because the ancient historians wrote a lot about him, especially the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus. They wrote a lot about King Herod the Great. And what they tell us is this guy was one mean dude. He was extremely jealous of anyone who might threaten his rule, and he was rather paranoid. He had around nine wives, and one of his favorite wives he had executed because he thought she posed a threat to his rule. He had a number of sons and daughters. He had two of his own sons massacred because he thought they posed a threat to his rule. Early on in his reign, he had a number of the Jewish nobles massacred, 45 of them, in fact, because they didn't support his rule. And at one point, the high priest of the Jews, Aristobulus III, he invited him to come for a dip at one of his swimming pools, and Herod had his servants drown the man. And then he tried to stage this cover-up and say that Aristobulus accidentally drowned. Everyone knew the reality. They knew the truth. He was a wicked, vindictive guy. He was a warped, warped frustrated old man. He was really a psychopath who must have been insanely jealous when the wise men stroll into Jerusalem, his town, and they tell him, hey, we're here to worship the newborn king of the Jews. You better believe that King Herod was upset, and he didn't like this one bit at all. Well, the Magi are the heroes in the story. King Herod is the villain, and in It's a Wonderful Life, George is the hero, and the villain is this mean Mr. Potter. As I mentioned, he's the richest man in town, but he's trying to grab every single business to buy it out, to force it out of business, to do whatever he can to take over that town. He is the taker. George Bailey is the giver. In this next clip, it's been three months since George's dad has passed away, and George speaks at the board meeting, and he tries to hand off the baton to other leaders because he's ready to go see the world. Here's what happens next as he confronts that villain, Mr. Potter.
Okay, great. God is good. God is good. Thank you guys so much. These guys on our team are amazing. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, DJ, for putting that together. Javier, and then they've been working hard on that, getting that together. Sometimes technology doesn't work, and God makes it happen, doesn't he? And so just a minute or so after this clip comes to an end, George is on his way out to see the world, and someone comes into the next room and tells him the good news. The good news is the board has decided to keep the building and loan open. But the bad news is they'll only keep it open under one condition, if George Bailey himself stays to run it in his father's absence. And so you know what George Bailey does next. He's a giver. He knows his town needs that one-horse institution, as he called it, because if he allows that building and loan to close down, all of the people in town are going to end up living in Mr. Potter's slums because he was a slumlord, and he overcharged for underperforming rentals. And so Mr. Potter, he couldn't bear to have take over the town, and George Bailey couldn't bear to see his friends taken advantage of, and so he sucks it up and he stays. And what ends up happening is Mary's dream that she had when she threw that rock at that old house comes true. George and Mary get married. They have four kids, two boys and two girls, and they move into that old run-down house that no one in town liked except for Mary. So Mary, when she had thrown that rock at that house, she was hoping that George would put aside his small dreams for some much bigger and more important dreams, some dreams to have a family that loves him, dreams of taking care of that town that he thought was a run-down, podunk little place to live. But Mary knew that it was a wonderful place to raise a family and do some of the greatest work that someone could ever do in this life. Well, at one point, Mr. Potter tries a different, more sinister plot to uh, get that building and loan to close down. He invites George into his office one day, and he gives him one of his fanciest cigars, and he sits him down in his nice big chair, and he tries to convince him to quit his job at the building and loan and come and work for him, Mr. Potter. He offers to pay him ten times what he's making at the building and loan, But the one caveat was if he came to work for Mr. Potter, he'd have to close down the building and loan. And so George, he is tempted because he's got a wife and four kids to take care of. He's tempted to take the offer, but he ultimately turns it down and knows that Mr. Potter is trying to trick him. He knows it's a sinister plot. Well, in a similar way, we see a sinister plot taking place here in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi almost fell for it. They almost believed King Herod when he said, hey, come back and let me know where the new Christ child is so I too can go and worship him. But they were warned in a dream that what Herod told them was not true at all. It says in verses 7 and 8 there in Matthew 2, Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child as soon as you find him. Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. We find out just a few verses later what he actually wanted to do was to kill Jesus. And since he couldn't identify which one was Jesus, he had every baby boy two years of age or younger massacred in and around Bethlehem. Well, one of the saddest moments in It's a Wonderful Life is when George goes to visit Mr. Potter and asks him for an $8,000 loan. Uh, George's Uncle Billy had misplaced $8,000 in cash and the bank examiner was bearing down on them and needed to check the books and make sure that no one had been embezzling funds. 
What neither George nor his uncle realized that was that Mr. Potter had found the missing $8,000 and he kept it for himself. After all, he was a taker. He knew that it belonged to the building and loan, but he kept it. He stole it. And he knew full well that George Bailey would be arrested once the bank examiner found out that that $8,000 was missing. George is at his lowest point in his life. He can't bear to see his uncle Billy take the fall for losing that $8,000. So George says that he lost it. He plans to take the fall for his uncle. But with a $15,000 life insurance policy in hand, Mr. Potter's words keep running through his mind. George keeps hearing the voice of Mr. Potter over and over, you're worth more dead than alive. You're worth more dead than alive. 
And so after getting drunk at Martini's Bar, George walks to a bridge outside of town and prepares to jump into the river below and end his life. And that's where we meet for the first time Clarence Oddbody, angel sent from God to help out George. And we know what happens next as George is about to jump off that bridge into that freezing cold river below and end his life. Just a second before he's about to jump, Clarence jumps because Clarence knew that George was a giver. And he knew that if he jumped first and was pretending to drown, George would jump into the river, not to end his own life, but to save Clarence, a perfect stranger who needed his help. And as George saves Clarence, Clarence in turn is able to save George. And God gives Clarence permission to show George Bailey what life would be like in Bedford Falls if he had never been born. And so over the next 20 minutes or so of the movie... He's going with Clarence throughout the town, seeing what it would be like without him, and he discovers that life in Bedford Falls was going to be really, really ugly if he had never been born. George's friends and neighbors live in Potter's slums. The downtown area is riddled with crime. George's brother is dead. His kids don't exist, and his beloved wife Mary is basically an old spinster. Jail or no jail, George ends up begging Clarence to give his life back And in this final clip, I want you to notice when it starts to snow. When it starts to snow is the very point at which George stops calling out to Clarence for help and instead starts calling out to God.
<laughs> oh, I love that scene. There are several wonderful biblical lessons that we can pull from this movie. If you've got the back of that handout there in front of you, jot these down. Number one, first lesson I think we can pull from this movie and from Matthew 2 is this. God does some of his greatest work through his followers who live in crummy little towns. Can I get an amen to that? God does some of his greatest work through his followers who live in crummy little towns. George Bailey thought that Bedford Falls was a crummy little town. Many in Israel thought that Bethlehem and Nazareth were crummy little towns. And I bet that some of you think that Victorville is a crummy little town. And I think God has a word for some of you today. Is Victorville a crummy little town? Well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But regardless, I believe that God can and will do some of his greatest work right here in the Victor Valley, right here in the city of Victorville. Some of you, go ahead. Some of you will be tempted to ignore what I'm about to say, but I urge you not to. Some of you are so, so anxious to get the heck out of Dodge. Some of you are so anxious to get out of Victorville as soon as you can. And when you think of Victorville, you think of Victimville. Or you live over in Atalanto and you're thinking of Ghetto. You live in Apple Valley and you're thinking Felony Flats. And you're trying to get out of this area as quickly as you can. And I think God is telling us through this simple Christmas classic, sometimes we look at Bedford Falls and think it's a crummy little town and can't wait to go see the world because there's nothing for me here. And I believe God has placed you in this town for a reason. I believe he's placed you in this Victor Valley for a reason. And it just may be, just as it was with George Bailey, that what God has for you here is so much bigger and better than what you think is out for you somewhere else. God has some work for you here. Lesson number two, no matter the cost, be a giver not a taker. No matter the cost, be a giver, not a taker. It turns out that Mr. Potter was exactly what George said he was. He was a warped, frustrated old man. And so was King Herod. He was a warped, frustrated old man who died just a few months after ordering the soldiers to massacre every baby boy two years of age or under in and around Bethlehem. He died just a few months after that. Please, church, don't allow yourself to become a warped, frustrated old man. Don't allow yourself to become a warped, frustrated old woman. Do what Jesus did. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. And George Bailey, in his own way, followed in the footsteps of Christ. He considered others more important than himself. And the Magi even though they were the top class there in Babylon, they traveled a thousand miles and humbly did what everyone in Israel should have done. They bowed down and worshipped the newborn King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By the way, by the time they rolled in to Bethlehem, Jesus was at least a few months old. They didn't make it to the manger scene. They left their homeland around the time Jesus was born, but it probably took them weeks or months to get there. But these came as soon as they could to worship the newborn king. Church, don't allow yourself to become warped and frustrated 
In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Put others' needs first. Love others first. Serve others first. No matter the cost, be a giver, not a taker. And finally, lesson number three. Remember who the ultimate hero is. If you ask the question, who is the hero in It's a Wonderful Life? Knee-jerk reaction is it's George Bailey. But there was another that was more of a hero than George. You can make the case that Mary saved George so that George could save others. You can make the case that Clarence the angel saved George so that George could save others. But ultimately, the greatest hero in It's a Wonderful Life is God, who dispatched that angel Clarence in the first place and saw what George could do and had a plan for his life. Those magi aren't really the greatest hero in Matthew chapter 2. The greatest hero in Matthew 2 is the God who put the star in the sky to guide the magi to be able to go and worship the Christ child and be able to have us 2,000 years later share their wonderful story with each other. God was the greatest hero, but he does something with that star. He uses the star to shine the spotlight on his son, Jesus Christ. And so God the Father makes sure that Jesus Christ is the greatest hero in the story. He makes sure that Jesus Christ is the greatest hero and the greatest giver in the story. And so ultimately, as we celebrate Christmas, Jesus Christ should be our focal point in everything because heaven's spotlight shined on the greatest hero in Matthew 2, Jesus Christ, the Savior born to save the world. Church, never forget that the life God has given you right here in this crummy little town is a life that God has given you for a reason. Never, remember, never forget that the, the life God has given you in this so-called crummy little town, it's a life of worshiping Jesus Christ by loving Him, by loving others, serving Him by serving others. And ultimately, it's not a lousy life. It's not a bad life. The life you live right where God has planted you is the most wonderful life that you could ever live. It turns out, that doing God's will right where God called us is a wonderful life. Amen. I'm out of clips. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for speaking to us through this simple Christmas classic. George Bailey was a dreamer. He was a visionary. He had big ideas that seemed so much better than staying in that little town and running a washed up building and loan. But Lord, you do miraculous things in little towns that are off the beaten path. I'm not sure, Lord, that there's anyone in this room that dreamed years ago of moving to Victorville. I know I've arrived in life when I moved to Victorville. I don't know if anyone in this room has ever thought that. I don't know that we've ever woken up in the middle of the night just so excited that you called us to Victorville. But Lord, that's beside the point. If you called us here, we are convinced as we follow you that your ways are better than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your plans are so much better than our plans. So I pray for anyone here today, Lord, who's just itching to get out of this place. Lord, if that's against your will, just like with George Bailey, I pray that you would close the door. If you want them to stay, close the door. But Lord, if you're calling us to go do something else for you, would you open the door widely and make it clear that it's by your leading? Father, I know we have several seniors graduating from high school in a few months. 
And Lord, it's hard the age of 17 or 18 making these big decisions about college, making decisions about career and life. Lord, I pray that you guide everyone into your perfect will. And I pray for others here, Lord, who've been looking for work but haven't found it in Victorville. Guide them into your perfect will. Others that are struggling, whether it's because of the cold weather, the altitude, or this terrible wind we get every, every so often, Lord, I pray that you would be with each one. And once again with them, guide them into your perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is Decision Sunday. If you are here today and you want to make